So in Ephesians, we have the first verse after the introduction, one verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed, past tense, who has blessed us in Christ with every, not some, not most, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not will eventually give you every spiritual blessing, but has already blessed. And this mirrors the promise that God gave to Joshua as he was on the edge of the promised land with the Israelites. The people that God had 40 years prior delivered from Egypt and had led them through the wilderness. Moses being the leader, he dies. Joshua ready to take them into this land that God had promised their great, 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 great grandfather. I didn't do the math, so don't quote me on that. Abraham, who was promised a land to give to his descendants. And here they are. Some two million of them ready to enter into this land. And it is in Joshua 1 verse 3 that God tells Joshua, Arise, for the land is yours. Everywhere that the sole of your foot touches, I have already given to you. Because he promised all of the land to Israel. And all they had to do was walk into it and say, It's ours. And God said, yes, exactly. I've already given it to you. Your inheritance is simply yours for walking through and inheriting and dwelling in. And so Paul begins Ephesians with a very, very similar tone that in Jesus, as Israel had the land, the church has Jesus. That in Jesus, our promised land, our inheritance, we have been blessed The land is already yours. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. There's nothing that we must do to work up a new level of spiritual blessing. It has already been poured upon us. It's upon us now to walk into it and to inherit it, dwell in it, receive it, apply it, appropriate it, keep going. It's up to you to experience these blessings that God has given to us. And so for the one who is unworthy tonight, you're like, I, I, you know, I try so hard. I have been to church this morning and I'm here tonight for extra credit because I want to, I want God to love me more. Listen, all you need is verse three and you can go home tonight right now. (laughs) All you need is verse three that you have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. In him, you have it all and you need not extra credit unless you like it. But you need not endure my teaching because you think that somehow you're going to get an extra blessing. It's not the case. The blessing's already there. It is my job to help guide us into them. And that's what you're discovering. So as Joshua is to take Israel into the land, Ephesians is taking us into Jesus. Now, here's what's scary is that there's a lot there for us. It is beyond exploration. You cannot find the boundaries. It's almost universal in the sense that they say the universe is expanding and we will never find the edge of it because it's expanding more and more. Your inheritance in Christ, you're not going to find the edge of it. And in Ephesians 3 verse 20, Paul prays to this effect that they would have the strength to comprehend 3 verse 18 
you may have strength to comprehend with the saints what is breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And you may remember from our first study, some translations put of the love of Christ, but that's not actually in the Greek text. It just stops short that you may know these four dimensions and that doesn't tell us four dimensions of what. And remember, we propose, perhaps Paul is saying that this is how great your inheritance is. It keeps going as high and as low and as wide and as long as possible. You can keep exploring and you're not going to get to the end of it because Israel never did get to the end of their inheritance. In fact, at the at the climax, at the peak of their existence in the promised land, scholars say that they occupied no more than 10 percent of their land. A mere 10%. And they somehow said, oh, we're the mighty king uh, David and Solomon are ruling over us. And we're great. And we're so rich that silver, we pave our streets with silver. And they had only gained 10% of their land. Can you imagine what more God had for them? And yet some of us do not explore and enter into our inheritance. We're very satisfied with where we were 20 years ago when we rose our hand and said, yes, Jesus, I want you. We're not exploring 318, the width, the breadth, the height, the depth of our inheritance. So then we got to chapters 4 and 5, where Paul tells us now that you know your inheritance. Let's walk in it. And so we looked at walking, and I had my daughter come up on stage and walk for us. And she um, was suddenly like walking better than ever before that night. She apparently rises to the pressure. And the cream rises to the top, right? And so she comes and she walks very well, but she was supposed to do her Jack Sparrow walk in Pirates of the Caribbean and just kind of um, uh, imbalanced. And, um, but we looked at her walk and we realized babies don't start walking well. They walk with a little bit of imbalance and they need a hand. They need support. And then finally, walking becomes second nature, but it's through the practice of walking. And Paul tells us five times, walk, walk, walk. And so now that you know your land is here and how to enter it into Jesus, uh, walk in it, explore it, make this part of your life, settle into your inheritance. And so we learned that to walk worthy in four verse one, he said, I want you to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Worthy literally means balanced in the Greek. And he's asking them to learn to walk balanced. Hold the hand of Jesus if you must right now. And you, you should really always. But it's soon it's going to become second nature and you're not going to be stuttering and stumbling. And before you know it, your new inheritance is going to feel, wow, I love this place. And you're going to keep exploring and growing into it. Well, that takes us now to Paul's end of the letter in chapter 6 in verse 10, where he uses this word, finally. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through the passage since it's short, just get it read. And then we're going to go into its meaning and what this is doing at the end of this letter. So read with me, if you will. Finally, finally, six verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes or the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, this is Paul writing for me, that words may be given to me and opening opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So, 21, just the closing final greetings, so that you also may know that I am how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Now, that would be the guy who's taking Paul's letter to the Ephesian region. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So here we have this picture of battle. And I have for us a little um, night. He's the night of light, not the dark night. Are you Batman fans? He's the, he's the knight of light. That's just too cliche, so I had to rename him. He sits in my office, and um, it's a good reminder of the armor of God, isn't he? Isn't he awesome? It's a little soldier. Um, so this is what we read about, is the armor that you have in Jesus. This, the armor of God. And it reminds us that there's a battle going on. Now we're going to talk about the nature of that battle because I'm not advocating at all that we go and violently proclaim the name of Jesus or get our agenda across. But we are reminded that there is a battle. Just like when Israel entered into their inheritance, there was a battle and there were battles to be fought. And Joshua had to lead them. And you know the very first battle, so famous, the Battle of Jericho. And this is what we, as we go into our inheritance, um, we have to realize that there is a battle that's going to happen. Now, for us, the whole battle that Israel did in going into the promised land has been done. Jesus did that on the cross. Jesus, by the way, Yeshua in Hebrew, um, it is the name, Joshua is really just one of our translations for Yeshua. Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Just the different languages translated come out differently. So literally, when the angel Gabriel, uh, I'm sorry, not Gabriel, but um, in Matthew, when the angel comes to Joseph in, and tells him that you're to name your child Jesus, uh, he would have heard Joshua. You're to name your child Joshua. And he said, because you'll save your people from their sins. 
And so here we have this valiant reminder of the Joshua of old who fought Israel's battles and brought them into their inheritance. And here's Jesus, the new Joshua, who's going to fight his people's battles and bring them into their inheritance. And Jesus does that. And he goes to the cross and he does this nonviolently. He goes to the cross and it is an epic battle in which all the powers of darkness and all the evil in the universe comes through the Roman Empire and through the religious leaders of Israel. And they come and they crucify Jesus. And by taking death upon himself, he actually conquers death. And the battle has been defeated when he comes out of the tomb three days later, resurrected. You threw your worst arrow and it didn't do a thing to me. So take that. And then he ascends to the right hand of the father to say, I am now the king. And we have settled all the accounts. And so what we have is literally a finished battle in which Jesus is the victor. And we are now following in his wake, in his victory into the land that he has conquered. And we're moving in. He said, here it is your inheritance. Joshua did that for Israel. But what was left over were the remnants of the enemy which Judges tells us God left there to test the people. Would they obey me or not? And so we follow Jesus into absolute victory. Our enemy is defeated. There's no doubt about our enemy's fate. We know how the story is going to end. We know that we are already victorious. But the, the, uh, the armies of the enemy are now divided. And they're running around like little minions, little pockets of resistance, trying to wreak as much havoc as they can, not willing to accept their defeat. And this is the battle that we're in. We're not battling for victory. We've already won. We're in the inheritance in Jesus. We're simply battling like Israel needed to, to stay in the blessings of Christ. That's where this battle is happening. Paul has told us that you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Go walk in it, take it, seize it, live in it. But now the enemy is running around creating havoc in your life to get you out of this position in Jesus and missing out on these blessings. That's where our battle is and that's where we need to stand up. And Paul's encouraging us. All right, soldiers, let's go. Let us hold the line in this inheritance in Christ. Let us not go backward. Let us keep going forward. Let us keep exploring our inheritance. Don't settle for the 10% or even less than that. Never settle. Keep on exploring and inheriting from Christ. And that is a battle. Because you and I are far too easily satisfied. So... When it comes to, uh, whenever we look at this, we come up with the topic of spiritual warfare. We talked about the warfare, and it's spiritual because we're not physically punching people and fighting, but this is about your soul. And where are you trusting and are you living in Christ or not? This is a spiritual battle. Spiritual warfare. There are so many questions about spiritual warfare. There are so many opinions. Spiritual warfare gets blamed for everything from people's plane tickets mysteriously disappearing on a trip to China to sound system gremlins. That's what they call them. When everything works fine until the worship team starts playing and then you see things going crazy, like monitors going out and microphones blowing up and, you know, it's just things and feedback that wasn't there before. Spiritual warfare gets blamed for everything that goes wrong in the Christian life, including traffic on your way to church. (laughs) And if that happens up here, that's really weird. (laughs) (laughs) So we have to ask, 
what is spiritual warfare and where do these concepts come from Ephesians 6 and how does Ephesians 6 address these and deal with these? So one thing that we need to say off the bat is there needs to be balance here when we talk about spiritual warfare. Now, I believe the Bible is the word of God and that is inspired from God and that is infallible and that it is uh, needful for uh, giving us direction and shaping us into men and women in Christ. And because of that, I take the Bible seriously, which actually gets me in a lot of trouble. People are fine as long as you teach what they assume is in the Bible. But as soon as you teach what's really in the Bible, they get really uncomfortable. And then they start getting very upset sometimes. So um, with that said, I have to tell you right now, after my many, 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 many long hours of study in Scripture, I have zero confidence in what exactly spiritual warfare is. Because honestly, we have given it more doctrine than the Bible actually gives it. And very little is said about angels and demons. It mentions their existence, but very little interaction is given to us. Very little, much, uh, there's not much explained. Ephesians 6 is really the meat and potatoes of this topic. So I want to say that right off the bat, that if we want to take scripture seriously, we have to find a balance in our approach to spiritual warfare. So... I'm going to take the opening, um, the preface in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters is a fascinating fictional read in which C.S. Lewis creates two demons who are writing to each other about their schemes or their wiles to try to trip up Christians. It's a very interesting, insightful read if you want to challenge yourself. But this is how Lewis says we need to approach a book like that. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our human race can fall about devils. One is to believe in their existence. The other is to, I'm sorry, one is to disbelieve in their existence. Deny them. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So, two very opposite, right? They don't exist. There's no spiritual warfare. People are making this up. When the sound goes wrong, it's because there's a sound engineer that doesn't know what he's doing. You know, that's like the there's no spiritual warfare view. Spiritual warfare view over here is, oh, and this person over here says like, and and the devil wears red tights and a tail on his horns and a pitchfork. And this person over here is seeing spiritual warfare in every nook and cranny of life. And there's an unhealthy fascination with the demonic realm and, um, These are two extremes. And Lewis says that it's important that we strike a balance, a middle. And this is why it's important to strike a balance, because we want to know properly what it is and what's going on. There is this um, ancient, about 500 BC, ancient Chinese warrior named Sun Tzu. And he wrote a book called The Art of War. And it is a a book that is still used and still read very widely in many um, organizations and realms. And it basically, he outlines his strategies for battle. And Sun Tzu, uh, in one part of his book, explains that in order to have assurance of victory, you need to know two things. You need to know yourself and your enemy. If you know yourself fully and your enemy fully, you can be certain of 100% victory in all your battles. Because you took the time to know your strengths and weaknesses, your enemy's strengths and weaknesses, and you exploited them. But, he says, if you only know yourself and don't know your enemy, then you can be very uncertain and you may win as many as you lose. So 50%. 
And then finally, if you take the time to know neither yourself nor the enemy, then you are going to lose every single battle. (laughs) So his point is very well made, is that you need to do your homework and understand both sides of the battle, and then you can be assured of victory. And so Paul here gives us a little bit of an introduction. You have read for five chapters, this is who you are in Jesus. Now in chapter six, he gives us a little tiny bit about your defeated enemy, who's just basically a dog trying to make a mess before he gets in trouble. Um... You know a little bit about him so we can go into victory. That's why we need to strike a balance in understanding spiritual warfare. So, question then is, what is spiritual warfare? And how much of our lives does it occupy? And what does it look like? All right, let's go to the text. So I need to point out to you this very important word that you may have or may not have noticed. It is given to us four times for emphasis. <laughs> so look with me at four, uh, 6.11. Put on the whole armor of God. And now here's the purpose. Okay, you put your armor on like this guy over here. What's the purpose of putting it on? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13 Therefore, he repeats himself, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. 14, stand, therefore. So there you have it. Four times he tells us to stand. And this is huge to me because when I look at spiritual warfare and I look at the armor of God and I look at what is our position in this whole thing, uh, there can be a lot of confusion. Because when you think of warfare, we're thinking, follow the general bravely. We scream and shout our lungs out as we plunge to death against the enemy. And, you know, it's all about who's stronger and feistier, right? And they're going to win. But what Paul does is he completely blows our minds and says, nope, the same way that my little statue has been just right here the whole time standing. That's what we're to do. That's it. Stand. It is the most boring battle, really, in some ways that you're ever going to be called into. Stand. Never once does Paul say go forward. Does he say advance? This is a nonviolent battle from our end. He tells us to stand. Once you have the armor on, stand. In other words, hold the line. This is fourth down and and less than a yard to go. And you're on defense. Hold that line. There is a line in the sand and everything is trying to push you on the other side of that line. No, stand. Stay there. Don't give an inch. When all the forces are coming against you, you have the armor that makes you, that makes you able to stand. Just stand. When the enemy is further out and luring you and tempting you and it looks like there's weakness and we can really make an advance if we just muster our troops and go after them. No, just stand. You are right now, if we are following Paul in Ephesians and you have claimed your inheritance in Christ, you are right now in the most perfect position you can ever be in. And to not stand there in this blessings that Christ has given you, to not stand there is to give up prime position. And everything the devil wants to do is get you out of that position. And so he says fourfold, stand, please, Christians, understand. Don't get mixed up in, the, in defining all the little parts of the armor because that means nothing if you don't know what the armor is for. The armor is for you to stand 
Stay put. Why? Because the devil is so crafty and he has schemes. Verse 11 tells us, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Why do you need to stand? Against the schemes of the devil. There are schemes or the Greek. If you, if you transliterate it to English, you would have spelled out method. <laughs> the methods of the devil, the schemes, or I love the New King James, the wiles of the devil. That is why we have to stand because the enemy is incredibly strategic and he has a huge bag of tricks to throw at you. And if we get into trying to outmaneuver him or let's go here, you get his flank there, I'll cover you and you do that and all these things. We are going to get so messed up and so disoriented. We may not lose our salvation. I'm not talking anything like that, but you just might be so distracted by all that's going on. The devil's got you exactly where he wants you. A Christian who does not even know who he is and what he's doing. That's why Paul says stand because these wiles, these schemes, these strategies, these methods are good. And you are in the safest, most powerful place you can be in Christ. So stand. Now, we watched. Um, admittedly, it's just a little bit of entertainment. <laughs> but we watched Coyote and Roadrunner. Uh, because um, I cannot once, I cannot even once get through this passage without beep, beep in my head. <laughs> and, and, and the cartoons replaying. And there's so many of them. I love those cartoons. I grew up watching a ton of them. And you know, there are a lot of like funny ones and cheesy ones that you'd watch. But when Looney Tunes did Coyote and Roadrunner, that was cream rises to the top, right? That was it. Coyote and Roadrunner. Just, it's so no words, you know, it just, and it's honestly the same thing over and over. You know, what's going to happen every time. <laughs> I think, I think those of us that see futility in life kind of relate to those cartoons because they're like, that's my life. <laughs> Anyways, I can't get through this passage without thinking of Coyote and Roadrunner because some of you may or may not know, uh, Coyote's full name is Wile E. Coyote. And that, that's the idea, actually, is that um, when it says that, uh, that we are to stand against the wiles of the devil, that's the idea, is that he is like coyote and we are like roadrunner and he has so many bags uh, so many tricks in his bag and up his sleeve it's it's unfathomable i am awed at the creativity of the creators of that cartoon and satan has a lot more than that you know the that strange company acme that supplies all of coyote's gear you know you're like what is this uh, an american company that makes everything is that what it stands for <laughs> acme uh He's got his own factory making all kinds of schemes against us. But the beauty of the cartoons is not only does it illustrate everything that Satan's trying to throw at us. The beauty of it is that none of them can touch us unless we're dumb enough to stop running. Right? Roadrunner just keeps doing what he does best. He keeps running. And Paul is asking the Christian to do what they do best. Stand in your inheritance. And as long as we stand in our inheritance, the wiles of the devil have nothing on us. And they're going to continue to backfire and backfire and backfire and backfire. But it's when we think we're advancing and making ground that the enemy actually is making ground. And this is the hard thing for us to accept is because we, especially as Americans, love the idea of progress and improvement. And we got to do stuff. And we're the country that made ourselves with our hands, right? 
We were a bunch of outcasts from the UK and from other nations after that. A bunch of outcasts. That's what America is built on. Outcasts that didn't fit in their countries, so they had to make something for themselves in America. And we love that concept. And so in the church, we love the concept of make something for ourselves. And Paul says, but wait a minute. As long as it doesn't take you out of position, don't try to make something happen. The battle's over. Just stand. That's why we need to stand. The wiles of the devil are good. But Jesus is better as long as we stand. Now, these wiles many times express themselves in two ways. And I've, I've already basically talked about the first. Deception, number one. Number two is division. Deception and division. We need to stand because otherwise we're going to be biting at the lure. And we're going to be deceived over and over. Therefore, you need to stand because the devil's good at deception. We saw that in the garden. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are deceived, right? Um, deception is very, he's very good. Jesus calls the devil uh, the father of all lies in John 8. He's good at deceiving. You don't want to fight him on his ground. Another principle of Sun Tzu, the art of war. Never fight the enemy on their ground. Right? You want the best ground, and your best ground is where you are, so stand. And then uh, division. That's also why we need to stand. Because so many times in the Old Testament, you see that God conquered Israel's enemies. How? By creating confusion in their camp so that the enemy defeated themselves and Israel just went in and took the spoil. You know how many times that happens? It's, it's, it's almost humorous that that can even happen. But that's what we need to be careful of is that we don't start getting aggressive and leaving our position, getting confused and start pointing the guns and the swords at each other. Because the devil, one of his wiles is division. And he wants that to happen. And this is one of the ways he gets it to happen. Is he erases verse 12 from your mind. What verse 12 says, this is so key. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Then there's this list, which he already mentioned in chapter 1. No one can identify specifically who the rulers and the principalities and the cosmic powers and the present dark, all those things. All we know is they're bad and they're spiritual. But that is a contrast. Your enemy is spiritual. He's unseen. If you can see and touch, if you could reach out and attack verbally or physically your enemy, you're fighting the wrong enemy. That's the principle. And it baffles, it absolutely boggles my mind when I hear Christians who go around bad-mouthing other Christians for the sake of protecting Christians. Like you're trick-or-treating and you hear the teachers at Lake Road Christian School are emergent. What? I'm making this up. Maybe um, that's not true. But why would Christians say that to each other? And if we're making an enemy out of someone who has a name, someone that we can touch and attack, you are messing with the wrong battle. You have stepped out of position and you are so disoriented in your own inheritance that you think the next person you can see is the enemy. You imagine you step out. This guy steps out of line. Gets all confused, turns around, sees another guy in armor. Ah, it's the enemy. Starts killing him. But wait, that was the church. 
Standing is so important. And the Roman Empire was built on its army. And their army was considered invincible. It's how they took over the world. They, if they want to take you down, good luck. They were going to take you down. And what they said is that the Roman army, as long as they marched in rank, they were unstoppable. But if you can get the army out of its ranks, you could actually defeat the Romans. But they were designed, their armor, their strategies were designed for the soldiers to march together. And this is what part of what Paul is emphasizing is stay in rank, stay next to each other, stand your ground. Don't become the lone hero. It's going to create division and it's going to create pain and suffering in the church. Some of you won't understand this illustration, but uh, enough of you will. If you've seen or read the Hunger Games, you'll know that in Catching Fire, uh, Katniss Everdeen is in a little bit of a conflict because she's about to go in an arena and have to fight for her life against what she thinks is 24, 23 other enemies who are going to try to kill her. And she has to kill them. And she has to be reminded before she goes in the arena, Katniss because there's this whole conspiracy going on that she doesn't know about, so she has to be subtly reminded. Katniss, remember who the real enemy is. It's not going to be the other boys and girls with swords and spears in the arena. It is the one that put this whole thing together, the evil capital, the empire that is putting you guys to kill each other together. That was what the point was. That's the real enemy. But we are in the arena, and we often look at the next person that threatens us, and we say, that's the enemy. And Paul would say, no, it's not flesh and blood. Remember who the real enemy is. There are powers at work behind the flesh and blood, and they are simply deceived. So if you can put a name to them, if you can put skin on them, if you can touch them, attack them verbally, physically, that's the wrong enemy, including the other political party, including ISIS, you know, like, look, I'm with you. Like, I have, you know, my team and the other team, you know, I'm, I'm like that too. But they are not worth my energy and hatred. They are simply the flesh and blood the enemy is cowardly hiding behind. And we have to remember who the real enemy is. That's why we must stand. Because if we don't stand and we attack, you're going to hit a friendly. And unfortunately... There is a, there's too much life lost in real warfare from friendly fire. We don't want to do that. So that's why we must stand, because the devil is deceptive and he's divisive in his wiles. Therefore, stand. Four times stand. Now, spiritual warfare then. This is how we need to view it. I was in um, the school of ministry at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Most of you know that. And I was, um, I'll be honest, I was a student, <laughs> a lot younger, and I'm in class, and I don't even remember what was being talked about, because I was probably surfing the web or something, pretending to take notes. <laughs> and I do remember that we had a group of guys that came from the Inland Empire to get to Costa Mesa, and the 91-215 is not a fun freeway to commute on. And they were very late. I think it was an hour or so into class and they come stumbling in and Carl Westerlin was the professor. He's teaching the class and he sees these guys stumbling and then the excuses start flying, right? There was traffic. So sorry, an accident worse than normal. 
you know, and they sit down. And someone else in the classroom blurts out, you know, as you would too probably, oh, spiritual warfare. And then we all like chuckle because we understand, you know, what they mean. And um, this is what I, this, this stuck out so much. Carl, he had this way of when Christians would say something that he saw as a little bit ignorant and not as fully informed as it should be. He had this way of smiling and nodding his head and kind of patronizing you a little bit. And he did, he started to do that. Like, oh boy, here it comes. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he said, spiritual warfare, it's not what happens to us but how we respond to what happens to us. And I had zero idea what he meant. But I, I was like, that was so weird and so opposite of what I thought it is that I remembered it. And then life happens. And you begin to experience spiritual warfare. And that phrase that stuck finally began to filter its way into life application and it made sense. I said, ah. Oh. So when I was driving up here from Orange, somewhere down the hill, um, maybe last year, it might have been two years ago. You guys know how it is with age, right? You forget. Um, I I was assuming Pastor Mike knew. I wasn't talking to all of you. (laughs) Flesh and blood, buddy. Um, (laughs) so I was driving up on a Sunday afternoon, uh, to get here and, um, I was teaching that night. I do remember that and, um, hit something. We don't know. I didn't, none of Brittany and I didn't see anything in the road, but all we know is the tire blew, right? So fortunately it was right where you cut off by the Indian reservation or that place, the first cut off. Um, so we, yeah, so we stopped there. And start changing the tire, right? And all I'm thinking is spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare, right? Like, of course, the devil wouldn't want me to get up on the mountain because I'm teaching tonight. So um, that's what's going through my mind. But then, of course, Carl Westerlin and his patronizing little smile and nod. Spiritual warfare is not what happens to you. It's how you respond to what happens to you. And so then I began to think as I'm changing this tire, um, that wasn't working too well. And... um, And I'm musing upon that. I'm like, that's so true right now. I'm finding the battle right now is that I'm changing a tire. It's while I'm changing it. This is the battle. It wasn't that the devil poked out some invisible spiritual sword and popped my tire. Although sometimes we talk that way. He did it. He gave me a flat tire. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I ran over something. But here's where the warfare set in. Was I going to get frustrated with this situation? Was I going to get angry? Was I going to... And you know how when things like this happen, how easy it is to get in a fight with your wife, right? (laughs) Was that going to happen? Like, there were a myriad of situations that now presented themselves to me as I'm dealing with a flat tire. The spiritual warfare wasn't that I got a flat tire. Ha ha, the devil's trying to stop me. Sometimes that may happen. But I think the real battle was right then when it happened, who was I going to be or how was I going to respond to the situation? That was the battle. 
Was I going to stand in my position in Christ? Or was I going to to uh, step to the left or to the right or start railing on my comrades? Was I going to lose my position because of this flat tire? Spiritual warfare is when uh, another pastor friend of mine, same situation, on his way to teach a Bible study to a youth group, um, making a turn right there at Grandview and Pine Rose Cabin, so 189 and Grandview, going towards Calvary Lake Arrowhead, and another car was turning left to go towards Antlers Inn, and they were, um, I don't know, well, I don't, coming, anyways. So he makes a left, and the car makes a left too, and T-bones into him. And he's, he's thinking, great, like, I'm on my way to go teach a Bible study. And he was ready to just be, like, angry, like, what's up, man? Like, you didn't see me? Like, I had the right of way. And he got out of the car, and it was this elderly gentleman that hit him. And he was so apologetic right up front that it disarmed him completely. A gentle word, a soft-spoken word turns away wrath, right? Proverbs 15, verse 1. And that's when I think he realized this is the battle. Okay, my car's been hit. That's a fact of life. But what am I going to say to this guy? Or what are, what's the attitude of my heart going to be when I leave this and go teach at church? Satan may not want you to get there at all. That's one strategy. But you've got backup plans. Someone else could have taught for him, right? Or for me. But what Satan would love to see is me still teach and have my heart in the wrong place. That would be more effective to him. And so we need to consider when life throws its ugly things at us. Not to just be quick to say, oh, that's spiritual warfare. I must be doing something right. I'm so holy. Uh, but, to, but to then, when things happen, that's when I need to hold up the shield and be extra careful. That's simply the shot across the bow, so to speak. That's the warning sign that something's going to happen, be ready. Stand your ground. Now, we've seen that we're to stand. We've seen why, because the devil has his wiles, and we've now seen what they look like when things happen to us. Who am I going to be or how am I going to respond? That's the battle. How now do we do this properly? What is our proper response? How is it that we are able to stand in place? That is where the different components of the armor come in place. These are the things that tell us where to stand. So if you'll go with them with me, we'll just look at um, what they are. Now, now, it is my belief that the different aspects, like the belt of truth, it's not so much important where the part of the armor is, like why is salvation on the head or why is righteousness on the breast? Uh, that is not so much the point as it is. Paul's just simply grabbing a metaphor. So here are parts of the armor. The point is what the part of the armor is connected with. So in other words, truth is more important than the fact that it's a belt. Righteousness is more important than the fact that it's a breastplate. Faith is more important than the fact that it's a shield. You follow with me? So rather than tediously, and there are some great insights if you try this, but rather than tediously finding out, you know, the picture of a helmet and a shield, and you could do that and it's really beneficial, but I just want to simply focus on the fact that the helmet is salvation and this is righteousness and this is faith and this is the word of God and this um, is truth and these are the gospel of peace. Like, I want to go through that. So in verse 14, you see, stand therefore, having fastened on. See, notice, having fastened on. In other words, you can only stand when this armor is in place. That's what makes you stand, the armor. And it's God's armor. So stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So we stand in truth, 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness, we stand in righteousness. And that's not just merely moral uprightness. Righteousness and justice are synonymous in scripture. So this is also talking about standing and doing, standing in what's right, defending the defenseless, being a father to the fatherless, loving the unloved. That's justice. That's righteousness. It's doing the right thing. So um, that's part of what we stand in. Um, And as shoes, verse 15, for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. So the gospel gives us a peace to be able to stand in the most violent warfare. 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. We stand in faith. Or in other words, faith is also loyalty. We stand in loyalty to Jesus and with one another. We stand with one another, and that's what makes us invincible is when we stand with each other. And, and by the way, the Roman shields, it was said that they had hooks and they were meant to interlock with one another so that they could march as a literal wall against their opponent. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. So we stand in the fact that we're saved. That's all Ephesians one through five. That's your salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so we stand in the word of God and all of this is held together in 18, praying at all times in the spirit. And that's going to give all this unity. And so this is what happens. Something happens to you. And there is in a moment, the battles on how am I going to respond? Who am I going to become? The armor is how you respond. The armor is who you become. Will I remain in truth in this moment? Will I stand up for what's just and right? Will I be loyal to the church and to Jesus? Will I hold fast to his word? Will I, will I remain, uh, will I keep the salvation that God has given to me? Will I stand in that truth rather than the lies of the world? These are the ways that we respond and we react. And so the devil's schemes and the devil's wiles are all about getting you to take truth off. You to take righteousness out of your picture. You to take salvation off your head and to stop thinking about it. That's what it's all about. So we are to stand, a fourfold stand, hold the line. And as things happen to us, spiritual warfare is not what happens to me, but it's how I respond to what happens to me. We're complete in the armor of God, and that's going to make us stand. And having done all, just stand. Don't go looking for more. So we thank Jesus tonight that he did the ultimate battle on the cross. And that's why we are called now to stand. The battle's over. We're standing against the scrimmages that remain until he returns. And Christian, please, let us remember that he wants to divide you and deceive you. So don't fight the wrong enemy. And don't step out of line.